Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 26. We're studying through the book of Acts. We're going to look at all of chapter 26. Yes, we got out on time, first service. I don't anticipate a problem. Hey, I'm like you. I, I listen to a lot of Bible studies, and, and some people, you just can't trust them when they're going to teach a whole chapter. You, you just don't know how long that's going to go, do you? The topic here is that the Apostle Paul turns the tables on King Agrippa and urges him to make a decision to accept Jesus Christ. The title of our message, Get a Grip. Uh. <laughs> Partially suggested to me by a congregant, and so I give credit where credit is due. Anybody has a title, just email it to me. I'm happy to use it. So we're looking at Acts 26. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through the text. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me." Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he's thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul, your prisoner, held in chains by Rome, but by your design, Lord, so that he could give his testimony to Agrippa, to Festus, to all those noblemen gathered there, and keep giving it, Lord, throughout the centuries as is recorded for us here in the book of Acts. I pray that we would glean some insight from it that is applicable to our own lives. Uh, Lord, whether we're believers or non-believers, whether we're almost or altogether Christians. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Almost is only good in horseshoes and hand grenades, or so the saying goes. The apostle Paul was trying to get Agrippa to make a decision about Jesus. Agrippa blurted out, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. What did he mean by that? Well, actually, his words can be translated several different ways. Bible translators struggle with getting the right sense of these words. The New American Standard Bible says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Uh, there's a New Testament translation called the Weymouth Translation, and it says, you are doing your best to persuade me to become a Christian. The Amplified Bible puts it like this, you think it's a small task to make a Christian of me? And so we can't really be sure whether Agrippa was near to being persuaded, was remaining neutral, or he was somehow mocking Paul. I would suggest that the language is ambiguous for a reason. When the gospel is presented, you'll get at least those three reactions. If a person doesn't accept the Lord, he or she could easily say, you almost persuade me to become a Christian and fall into one of three categories, near, neutral, or maybe they're just being nasty towards you. Agrippa's unusual remark led 18th century evangelist George Whitfield and John Wesley to both preach sermons titled, The Almost Christian. George Whitfield said this, Amongst those who gladly receive the word and confess that we speak the words of truth and soberness, there are so few who arrive at any higher degree of piety than that of Agrippa or are any farther persuaded than to be almost Christians that I cannot but think it necessary to warn my dear hearers of the danger of such a state. John Wesley said this, many there are who go thus far 
Ever since the Christian message was in the world, there have been many in every age and nation who are almost persuaded to be Christians. It avails nothing before God to go only thus far. And so it got me thinking, if these two great men of God, evangelists with concern for souls, looked at people that way, maybe we should start thinking of non-believers, all of them, as almost Christians. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, be blessed when you address almost Christians. And number two, be bold when you address almost Christians. First of all, in verses 1 through 23, be blessed. The Apostle Paul had been held in protective custody for over two years. The new governor, Festus, inherited the case. Paul appealed to Rome, and therefore he had to be sent on to the higher court. Festus had nothing to charge him with. He was hoping Agrippa might be able to come up with a suggestion. And so an elaborate event was held during which Agrippa was to hear from Paul. Hear from him he did. Paul seized it as an opportunity to witness to Agrippa. And Paul said of this opportunity in verse 2, I think myself happy. The word for happy is the word blessed. As Paul stood there in chains, being mistreated, having his rights violated, having been held in protective custody for more than two years, he said with all sincerity, I am a blessed man. No matter his circumstances, he was blessed to be able to share the Lord. We are blessed men and women. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a blessed man, you are a blessed woman. We have this treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels to share with others. Since we are taking this chapter as a whole, we're going to move fast. What we're looking for in this first section is to see how having this perspective that we are blessed affects our appreciation for sharing Jesus with almost Christians. And so beginning again in verse 1, then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself blessed, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. This was not a hearing or a trial. It was not a legal proceeding at all. Once Paul had appealed to Rome, all such preliminary hearings and trials ended. He was before Agrippa voluntarily. He could have refused, but of course, Paul, always wanting to share the gospel, always ready to give an answer, uh, looked forward to this interview. Because he was blessed, Paul could concentrate on Agrippa and ignore, in a sense, his own circumstances. I mean, this is a perfect opportunity to say, hey, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Do you realize I've been in protective custody for two years? I'm in chains. I haven't done anything wrong. You don't even know what to charge me with. Boy, you guys are in trouble. When I get to Rome, I'm going to let them know what a bunch of lousy, uh, you know, low-level uh, bureaucrats you guys are. He didn't do any of that. He said, man, I am so blessed to be here to talk to you. He wasn't focusing on his own circumstances. Too often we look to our circumstances to determine whether or not we think we're being blessed. We think, wow, this just happened. You know, uh, I went out to the mailbox and there was a check for a million dollars. 
By the way, that didn't happen. But I pray for it every time I go out to the church mailbox. Not my mailbox, but the church. So God, it's real. It's a godly thing. Anyway, I said, maybe, maybe, you know, my friend, one of my friends in Southern California has a much larger church. He did get a donation of a million dollars last year. And uh, I don't know how good a friend he is because he hasn't shared any of it with me. But... (laughs) So these things happen. And, and so, you know, but I think, man, if, if that check for a million dollars comes through, I am blessed. If I open the mailbox and that bill from the electric company comes through, I am not blessed. But that's not the situation at all. We're blessed no matter what, whether we're abounding or whether we're abased. We need to get this attitude completely out of our thinking. Our circumstances don't determine our blessings. And so Paul could say, I'm not even going to talk really about my particular circumstance. I'm going to give you my testimony, tell you how I got here, but I am blessed to stand before you because I have the treasure of the gospel in an earthen vessel, and I'm going to reveal the Lord to you. Now, Paul knew quite a bit about Agrippa and tailored his comments appropriately. He knew Agrippa's background, Agrippa was a public figure, et cetera, et cetera. We may not know everything about people we're talking to in the same way, but it encourages us to think about the people we encounter. What kind of almost Christians are they? How much or usually how little do they know about God or the Bible or Jesus Christ? How did their upbringing bring them to this point in terms of their church background if they have any? How can we meet a person right where they are? Uh, and so, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, talk to people, people, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, you know. Uh, I mean, a lot of times we want to launch right into our, t- our, our witnessing to them or our testimony. Sometimes it might be helpful to get to know them uh, in these areas. Hey, did, did you ever go to church when you were a kid? Your parents ever drag you to church? Did you ever go to church? That's a very interesting question. You'd be surprised. Uh, you know, some people have absolutely no background in church whatsoever, They don't even know what you're talking about. Their idea of church is something they saw on television or or heard from somebody. Other people, oh, yeah, you know, my folks drug me to this church or that church. Uh, You know, we went to church twice a year or I went to this Pentecostal church and this lady used to do this. And, you know, and and you find out where people are coming from. and, And, you know, not that it's... Uh, psychology or anything, but people, they kind of form an opinion about God and the Bible and church from those early uh, things. And, and so when you start talking to them about church, they remember the lady who started speaking in tongues and jumped through the window. And so when you say, hey, would you like to come to church? Oh, no, not at all. Or you say, uh, would you like to come to church? They think, Midnight mass? Are you crazy? I'm going to be asleep at midnight, you know? Or, or, or maybe they have gone to a church that was in the middle of a building project and they just barely got out of there with their wallet. Uh, and so church means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so you need to know. Sometimes when people, I've told you this before, when people call us at the office, and or if, even if they're asking you as friends, they say, tell me a little bit about your church. Don't ever tell them anything about your church until you ask them what they really want to know. Because I could talk about our church for days and days. You could put me on hold and I'd still be talking. I love our church. And there's so much to talk about. Think about it. Tell me a little bit about your church. 
Wow, what a huge topic. The history of the church, the building, the people, the ministries, what, what do you, and so a lot of times when people ask that, I say, well, let me ask you a question if you don't mind. What are you most interested about when it comes to church? And almost always a person will say, oh, I'm glad you asked. I wanna know if you believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I wanna know if people speak in tongues on Sunday morning. I wanna know what your opinion is of giving. I want to know this or that because they have some relationship to an issue that they're either very excited about or that bothers them. And so ask questions. Jesus used that kind of method. A lot of times people would ask him a question. He'd say, well, let me ask you a question. And he would put into perspective the truth of what was really going on. And so we wanna to get to know people and find out where they're at. And then I wanna to notice too the courtesy with which Paul addresses Agrippa. Not flattery, but real courtesy. Believers are too often identified with hate and anger. It's not always our fault. The media uh, always finds the worst example of Christianity. Uh, anytime you see an example of Christianity, it's almost always negative. It's, you know, these people that picket funerals and, and that hate everybody and they have those signs that say God hates, you know, you fill in the blank kind of a thing. And, and so, you know, it's not always our fault, but at the same time, we don't want to be identified with hate and anger. We don't want to be against people. Our God loves sinners and he is seeking them to save them. I mean, God came from heaven to earth and, and took on human form because he loved the human race so much. And, and I, you know, it's unfathomable to think what Jesus Christ sacrificed just becoming human, the God-man, let alone going to the cross. And so we don't ever want to give the impression to anybody that God is anything but loving. We're going to tell them the truth, don't worry. But God loves them as sinners and is trying to draw them. We don't want to be against anything. We want to be for Jesus. And so Paul now begins his testimony in verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. All throughout his testimony, Paul mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind because we'll return to it in a moment. The gist of Paul's review of his past life was that he thought he was a very good person and he was a very religious person before he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He discovered that being good was not enough to get you into heaven. He discovered that religion cannot save you. Now, everyone's testimony is different. Some of you have been Christians as long as you can remember. You don't have the gory stories to tell. 
Some of you got saved later in life and you do have radical things to reveal. But all of us understand that no matter how good we were, we were sinners. And no matter how bad we were, God could save us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, all the time, a lot of times when I talk about giving our testimony or your testimony, I like to encourage those of you who have what would be considered, and please, you know, not to be derogatory, I'm trying to encourage you. A lot of people consider their testimony mediocre. I have a mediocre testimony. Well, what does that mean? I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't a drunk. I didn't murder anybody. I wasn't, you know, a mafia hit man. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't get up and tell you all the horrible things I did. You know, I, I just have, you know, I, I was going along in life and my life was faltering and I came to know Christ. And, and, and a lot of people, they're embarrassed to give their testimony because it doesn't seem very dramatic. I want to encourage you. I had an experience early in my Christian life when I was a salesman. I stopped into this one real estate office, and it was kind of unusual because no one was there except me and this one guy. Larry Clark was his name. Never forget Larry. He would never talk to me, never in a million years, not for business, not about God. He just didn't want to have anything to do with me. I didn't, never understood that because I'm such a wonderful guy, you know, but anyway, Larry Clark, and so I'm in there. And I figured, I'm going to leave you my card, Larry, you know, I'll get out of your way. And he, hey, sit down, I'd like to talk to you. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is crazy. And so, he, and he started asking me questions. I had no idea what was going on. He said, he said, let me ask you a question. He goes, uh, you're uh, religious, right? And I go, well, you know, I gave him the standard. Well, it's a relationship, not a religion, you know, that kind of a thing. <laughs> I probably just said, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. And, and he goes, uh, he goes, well, um, he goes, were you a drug addict? And I go, well, I, I took a lot of drugs, and, and you know, but, you know, and, and I guess you'd say, but he goes, but you, you weren't in a recovery program. I go, well, no, not really. He goes, how about, were you a drunk? I go, well, I drank a lot, you know. He goes, but did you go to Alcoholics Anonymous? I mean, were you passed out in the gutter? I go, well, not a gutter, but I was, and he goes, no, but I mean, were you... <laughs> Were you absolutely down? And I go, no. And he went on and asked me, and finally, I, I, he kept asking me these wild questions. I said, well, why are you asking me this? He said, because the only people I see who are Christians, he, he admitted that he kind of watches Christian television every now and then. He says, the only people I hear and see have these really dramatic testimonies. And I can understand why a person like that would turn to God because they've turned everywhere else and nothing has helped them. That kind of a person needs God, but I don't understand why I need God. And I thought, wow, this is profound. This is huge. You know, all of a sudden, everybody's testimony became important, not just the drug addict, murderer, you know, mafia chieftain. And, and I mean, we still like those juicy testimonies, don't we? Wow, you did that. I was talking to a brother. I got to share this. I know. Bear with me. But one of the brothers, first service, who's a, a, a correctional officer at uh, Corcoran, he came out laughing. He goes, I got to tell you a story. He goes, we had a, an event once on the yard, an evangelistic event, and this one gentleman came out, and he was sharing his testimony, and he, you know, murdered this guy and was put in jail, got out of jail and found the two guys that, that you know, uh, testified against him. He murdered them and got put back in jail, killed a guy in jail. Then he became a Christian, and all of a sudden, miraculously, he was released from jail. And he gave this testimony, got everybody whipped up. And so afterwards, uh, the, the guard went up to some of the guys and he says, hey, what'd you think about that testimony? And they go, man, that was a great testimony. And the, and the prisoner said this, they said, we know it's all a lie, 
but it was a great testimony. <laughs> because, you know, that maybe happens one in a million times, you know. I killed this guy, went to jail, they let me out. I killed two more guys, I went to jail, they let me out. I killed a guy in jail, and then the doors just swung open for me after I became a Christian. I, that, could that happen? Sure. Did it happen? No. And, and, so, and so a lot of times, you know, I've, guys, they just, wow, this is going great. I'll make up some more stuff about my testimony. You know, I, I mean, it's sad, but it's true. So whatever your testimony is, it's precious to God because it's yours. And whoever you're around, they probably don't want to hear that you were a mafia chieftain, you know, a mob hitman. Uh, and, and so just give them your testimony in Jesus Christ. And so verse 12, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me with those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, I want to focus on the fact that meeting Jesus Christ set Paul's life in an entirely new direction. It gave his life purpose and direction. Things get a little bit more personal for us at this point. If I'm going to share Jesus Christ with almost Christians, I think they have the right to examine my life. What difference does Jesus really make in my life? Does my life have a spiritual purpose and direction? Or is it indistinguishable from that of the person I'm sharing with? You don't want to hear when you're giving your testimony or when you start to share with somebody and you say, hey, I, you know, I'm a Christian. You don't want to hear, you're a Christian? It's, it's just a little bit negative. <laughs> if you were doing a top 10 list of things you don't want to hear when you're giving your testimony, that would be on it. You, you're a Christian? with a chuckle at the end. I mean, so now again, people aren't always fair. Sometimes they're just being mean. And all of our lives, if they were really, really scrutinized, there's something that somebody's gonna grab onto and say, well, I didn't think a Christian, you know, did this or said this or went here or whatever. I mean, you know, and, 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 and that's just the nature of the beast. But there are some people, you, you know, and, and all of us have had this experience and hopefully we've been calm about it. Somebody says, oh, so-and-so is a Christian and at least you think to yourself, really? What kind of a, are they an almost Christian or are they are a Christian, an altogether Christian? And so you, 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 if you're gonna share with somebody, I think it gives them the right to ask you and to look at your life and say, well, what difference does that make? Why would I wanna be a Christian I'm already just like you. And you should be able to give an answer for that. And so um, we want to be uh, open and transparent with people. And maybe we, sometimes we need to say, you know, you're right, and I'm in sin in this area. And the reason you need to be a Christian is because God is forgiving me my sin, and I'm gonna go to heaven, and you're not. 
until you come to know us. I mean, so there's a way of handling those situations, but I think, we, I think you understand what I'm talking about. I mean, we want to be living the Christian life to a dimension that people aren't surprised that that is the purpose and direction of our life. And so in verse 19, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Phrase that jumps out at me, having obtained help from God. The almost Christian needs to know that the Christian life is not a life of religious effort. It is a life of resting in the power of God to fulfill his promises. It is a life in which we have access to every spiritual blessing, where spiritual victory is assured, and where failure can be forgiven again and again and again. You know, when you share Christ with people, just like in your life when someone shared Christ with you, we have a natural self-righteousness and we automatically think, I have to do something in order to get right with God. I have to change my life and then I can go to church and get right with God. Uh, and the truth is, God meets you where you're at he saves you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and then who changes your life? God changes your life from within. The whole problem is you don't have the power to change your life without coming to know the Lord. And no amount of trying to change your life is going to help you meet the Lord. And, and, and so don't forget that. The Christian life is a supernatural life. It is the life of God given to you so that you can live life as it was intended to be lived. And, and, and so people need to know you're going to obtain help from God to live the kind of life that is pleasing. And so it's not a matter of giving up anything. It's a matter of gaining a relationship with Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, living forever with him. And once you have that, you'll find that you're just not interested in some things like you used to be. You'll find that they're not helpful in your Christian life and walk. In fact, you'll find that they're hindrances and you just won't be doing them anymore. And so let's return briefly to the theology underlying Paul's address. He stressed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He did it throughout the whole talk, uh, but he did it at least three times. First in verse eight, he said, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Then in verses 14 through 18, he declared that he had personally experienced the power of the risen Christ. And finally, in verses 22 and 23, he showed how the resurrection of Jesus was promised and prophesied in the word of God. Now, Paul had this remarkable, dramatic Damascus Road conversion, but you and I also, if we're Christians, we've experienced these same three things. The promises and prophecies of the Bible have been proven by the historical fact of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Paul had the word of God, we have the word of God. And then they are proven by the power of his resurrection in the changed lives of those who believe in him. Paul's life changed, your life changed. 
And to every almost Christian, what we're really saying is, why then should you think it's incredible that God raises the dead? It's a historical fact, and it's a practical fact in my life. There is good historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, and I am evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Why are you thinking it's incredible that God, the creator of the universe, would love us so much as to accomplish this? It's really a precious thing. Paul was obviously being very bold. No matter that Agrippa's great-grandfather was the Herod who tried to kill the infant Jesus when he ordered the murder of the newborns. No matter that Agrippa's grandfather was the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. No matter that Agrippa's father was the Herod who had James beheaded. These were a ruthless group of Herod. Uh, you know, I mean, these guys were, they're just not lopping heads off, killing babies. You think somebody would go to Paul and say, hey, you want to be a little bit careful how you talk to Agrippa because their family has a little bit of an anger problem. <laughs> Paul was going for it. He says, and earlier, last week, we saw him say, I, I, I'm not, I don't care if I die. You want to kill me, that's fine, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. And he does it courteous, uh, with courtesy and with respect, but very boldly. And it encourages us to be bold when we address almost Christians. That's what we see in verses 24 through 32. Paul was being led by the Holy Spirit to focus on Agrippa. At one point, Festus, who understood very little of Jewish history or doctrine, rudely interrupts. Now, as he thus made his defense, verse 24, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. Have you ever been accused of being too involved in your relationship with Jesus Christ? I hope you have, because you should be. There is a proper fanaticism to the Christian life that all of us should be guilty of. I, I, you know, I didn't know it yet because I hadn't read the book of Acts, but uh, one of the uh, early experiences in my Christian life, one of, uh, my dad uh, told me, cause I, when I, I believe it was the day I told him I had become a Christian, uh, he told me not to read the Bible too much because it, I would go crazy. And, uh, and I thought, wow, that seems weird, but you know, Festus thought the same thing. And, and it doesn't really mean, they don't mean you're going to go crazy and start drooling and be a, you know, committed like an insane person. They mean you're going to become a religious fanatic. You're going to think that God is involved in your life, in every aspect of your life. You're going to want to go to church and be around other religious fanatics like you. You're going to say things like, praise the Lord, <laughs> and stuff like that. And, and, and they, they, you know, they're, they're nervous about that, but I think that's something great to be guilty of. Would to God that tomorrow when you go to work or school or wherever you go that somebody would say, hey, you're crazy. What'd you do, go to church yesterday? You sound like a fanatic. We need a little bit more of that kind of proper fanaticism. He says, after all, this thing was not done in a corner. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central event of human history. Everything before it leads up to it. Everything after it depends upon it. If it's not true, nothing is true that we believe. 
And so in verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Paul pressed him. Agrippa was the kind of almost Christian who believed the prophets. He assented to the fact there were prophets whom God sent. He probably would have, if you asked him, he'd say, well, yes, I believe in God. Perhaps he was like the modern liberal scholars whose higher criticisms get in the way of saving faith. You read that and you think, well, how can somebody believe but not believe? Well, they're, just watch the Discovery Channel during Easter. And, and all of these guys, really smart guys, uh, scholars with PhDs and they're seminary uh, trained and they're teaching at seminaries and divinity schools and schools of religion. And all of them, without uh, you know, well, every one of them, they say, well, let's look at the Bible and see what the Bible says. But of course, we know that the Bible isn't really the word of God, not in the sense that it was inspired, infallible, and inerrant. We, we know that the Bible is full of errors. We, we know that it was written by, you know, men who reinvented the events. Uh, and, and I'm thinking... How can you believe but not believe? What, what do you believe in then? You believe in your own intellect because you look at the Bible and you judge the Bible. You say, well, I don't think that's true. Why not? I don't know. I'm too smart to believe that. One of the criticisms of the Bible, by the way, is that it's full of prophecy. And you say, well, why is that a problem? Well, we believe that that was written after the event. Why? Because they wouldn't have known ahead of time what was going to happen. Isn't that the definition of prophecy? Yes, but we don't believe that there is such a thing as prophecy. It's, it's an amazing thing, and so Agrippa was that kind of almost Christian. Sure, I believe in the, I, I read the Old Testament, I go to the temple, I believe in God. Well, this is what the prophets say. I don't believe that. I don't believe that the Messiah is gonna come and suffer and die and rise from the dead, and so there are a lot of almost Christians. If statistics are an indication there are a lot of them in our country. According to one study, study's a little dated now, it's back in 2001, but the percentage of people who identified themselves as Christians in 2001 was 77%. If you can think back to 2001, but let's, let's just say it's the same percentage now, give or take a few percent. Do you think that nearly 80% of the people in Hanford and Lemoore and Armona and the rest of Kings County are Christians? If they are, where are they? You don't have to come to church every Sunday to be a Christian, but I'll tell you right now, the churches in Hanford have never been 80% full with the population of this county. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just not happening. Then if you go further, evangelicals only number eight, uh, 7%, and that number has not changed from 1994 through 2005. Uh, and so there's a lot of people who think they're almost Christians. They're, they're this big number, but only 7% are what we would call evangelical or born again. And so in verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. Agrippa was either near, neutral, or as I said, just being nasty to Paul. No matter why he was almost Christian, Paul's prayer and desire was that he and everyone else would be altogether Christian. Verse 30, when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. 
And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of chains or death. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so they broke off listening to Paul, and they went and they started talking about Paul's case. They, essentially, they went back to their work. They went back to being the governor and the king and figuring out what they were going to do with this case. They were hiding behind their busyness or their importance or their earthly relationships. They remained each in their own way, almost Christian. Paul went on as the altogether Christian. It's not hard to choose which spiritual adjective you want to be applied to your life. Do you want to be an almost Christian or an altogether Christian? If you've stopped short of receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you're almost Christian. The specific reasons don't matter. You believe something about God, the Bible, and Jesus, but you've never been born again. You're an Agrippa. If you are saved, then the exhortation here is to live altogether for the Lord. Non-believers and even some nominal believers should look at your life and think you're a little bit too fanatic about this Jesus fella. You're a little bit too into it. You know, when you first fall in love with someone, it affects you on every level. One thing that happens is you begin to see less and less of your friends as you spend more and more time with that person. It's so common that we joke about it. We say things like, well, another one bites the dust. Or, hey, you're already wearing that ball and chain. It only gets worse from here. Uh, I mean, we have a whole industry of, of jokes about that precious relationship of, of a man and a woman who are in love with each other. It's because we recognize that. One minute you've got a best friend and then all of a sudden he gets married or you know, he falls in love and gets married and you don't have your best friend anymore because he has a new best friend. And it's in movies, on television, everywhere. So we understand that. This is kind of what I'm talking about this morning when it comes to Jesus Christ. This is the fanaticism. It's a fanaticism of love that people would understand that I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that is more important to me than any other earthly relationship, than any other earthly endeavor. Everything I do really has something to do with the fact that Jesus Christ saved me and that I'm going to spend eternity with him. It doesn't mean I don't go to work. It doesn't mean I don't go to school. It doesn't mean I have to be in full-time Christian ministry. But it means that everything that I do and everything that I am is permeated with this understanding that I'm doing it as unto the Lord. I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm doing it to represent the Lord or I'm representing him as I'm doing it. And so there needs to be a healthy fanaticism about our lives, not being discourteous, not attacking people, not being angry, not being hateful. Just the opposite, that people would look at us and think there's just something about you that is so amazing. It's just, it's, there's a sweetness, there's a savor, there's a grace to it. I have to know what that is because I've tried to find that. I've tried to discover it. I've, I've, been, in, I've been religious. I've been anti-religious. I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I've, I've tried drugs and alcohol and relationships. I've done everything that the world has to do, or, or I'm still trying some of that. You know, I, maybe if I could become a millionaire, you know, then that would do it, but I, I suspect that that's not gonna help me either. What is it that you have that I don't have? That, who is it that you live for? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm not... Uh, I'm blessed to tell you that it's Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these things and ask for your blessing upon our lives. Boldness, Lord, comes from you. It's a byproduct of the filling of your Holy Spirit, and so I pray that we would be filled fresh and new and that, uh, Lord, that filling would overflow and that that overflow would touch the people that we come into contact with. Give us that healthy fanaticism, Lord. May it be natural and real so that uh, the almost Christians that we encounter would become altogether Christian. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together. Um, Closer to noon, we'll be back for the baptism, and so just grab a cup of coffee, hang around uh, on campus until that. And it's just an encouragement. I mean, let me, let me put it to you this way. Let me just go ahead and, and put a trip on all of you. No, I won't do that, but I was going to say something that would put a trip on you, and so bad, Pastor, bad, Gene. But hang around, and uh, if you want to know what I was going to say, I'll tell you later. But uh, see, I, I, I make lots of mistakes. Love to have you hang around for the baptism. Uh, but the cafe will be open, the bookstore's open, uh, and it's just neat. To, to meet people and to fellowship with people. Get to know somebody today. Uh, in, as, as I do every week, identify somebody you've never really met before or if, you know, look around and say, I don't know that person's name. I don't know that person's name. I, I, and you should want to, I want to know your name. You know, who are you? I'm Gene. Uh, okay, remember, I, you know, we're not all Gene. You're whoever you are. And, uh, and just get to know somebody or at least introduce yourself. If you can stay for the baptism, that'd be a blessing. The guys are up here to pray with you. Uh, nothing would give us greater joy than to, to meet with you for a few moments and pray for something that's going on in your life or in the lives of others. Uh, maybe there's some sick among us or uh, someone that as we've been talking this morning, you thought, you know, I know some almost Christians. I really want to have an effect in their life. And, and uh, you know, will you pray for me tomorrow when I go to work that the Lord would open up this door or that door or that avenue, whatever it would be. Uh, if you were here on Easter or maybe you got saved recently and you need to be baptized, even though you didn't sign up for it, come and see me and we'll throw you in the water. Uh, you can still be baptized. Uh, If you're being baptized, you received a letter, you know what the drill is, and, and we'll see in just a few minutes. May God bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.